So coming down from mountaintop experiences like the one they just had can be quite a shocking experience, can it not? How many times have you uh, gone to a retreat or come home from an especially powerful concert, a Christian concert or or a prayer meeting or, or something, and you come home and it's like the kids are fighting, you come in the door and your spouse is just frazzled and it's just like, whoa, too much real life too soon, right? we like, I want to back up, go back to the car and have a repeat. Let's rewind. We like to think that we can be eased back into life after we have one of these spiritual high moments, but the Shocking and stark and uncomfortable reality is we don't control the speed of life. We are transient beings that respond to life rather than control it. Now this passage offers us a profound glimpse into the nature of discipleship in that there is that Immediate connection between verses 13 and 14. They come down the mountain. They're experiencing the glory. They're coming down the mountain, and as soon as they get there, they're, boom, face-to-face with conflict and discord. That is the nature of discipleship. Okay, Never forget that in the main, the Christian life is lived in those valleys at the base of the mountain. We are engaged in a spiritual war, okay? We are engaged in a battle for the souls of men and women and children. We want to see the kingdom of God spread throughout the earth. We want to see its influence exerted in our cities, in our states, in our countries, yes, but even in our homes and in our church. And so that requires the tough, dirty, slugging it out, in the valleys and trenches of life. Just as soldiers in war spend more time in combat than they do on R&R, so too we spend more time in those trenches fighting than we do away on R&R. Discipleship 101. Do not consider the difficulties of normal life to be an obstacle to your Christian walk. They are the matrix in which your Christian walk is fleshed out. Okay? So if your life is full of discord and disunity, it's normal. And that's the environment in which God has you, in which your discipleship gets fleshed out. We may want to run back up to that mountaintop. I bet you Peter, James, and John, when they had, saw that fight going on, they bet they wanted to run back up the mountain. But God's purpose and plan for them was right there. So too for us. All right? So Discipleship 101. The difficulties of normal life are not an obstacle to your Christian walk. They are the matrix in which your Christian walk is fleshed out. Okay? So, Matthew 5.13 tells us that we are the salt of the earth. Now salt, some have tried to discern, is Jesus saying that salt has a, is he referring to its preservative effect? 
Or is he referring to its flavor-enhancing effect? I don't know. Both, probably. But here's the key. For salt to have its effect, it has to be in contact with whatever it is that's trying to be influenced. If it's going to preserve meat, you have to bury the meat in the salt. It has to be in touch with it. If it's going to flavor enhance the soup, you got to put the salt into it, okay? You are meant to be in contact with difficult, strenuous times in order to have the effect that God has you intended to be. And so, the question arises then. If the bulk of my Christian life is to be lived in the valleys... And if I am called to live faithfully and carry out the mission he has for me, and he does, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not consigning you to aimlessly wandering the hills. He's calling you to a life of purposefulness and discipleship in which you are on a mission to spread the kingdom of God in your place. So how do I find the strength to do that where do we get the strength to live the christian life how do we keep on keeping on when there's tough slow grinding it out in the trenches advancing an inch at a time where do we get that strength now i believe that this passage underscores what the rest of the Bible teaches, namely that we get the strength for the spiritual Christian life, for the Christian life, through our vital union with Christ. One of the great mysteries and truths of the Bible is that we are united to Christ. And so the Holy Spirit applies to us all the benefits that Christ has procured for us by his life and his death and his resurrection because we are one with him. We are united, and so we, we see that union beautifully on display in such passages as Galatians 2.20, which many of us know. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. Okay, that's union with Christ right there. That the very strength that Paul gets for living his life comes from the fact that he is one with Christ. The power to live faithfully comes from our acknowledgement, our self-conscious dependency, and indeed our celebration of the fact that we are dependent upon Jesus. Yes, we must celebrate the fact that we are dependent upon Jesus. We don't like celebrating dependency. Ours is a culture, we are beings that want to celebrate self-sufficiency and autonomy. We want our children to grow up and move away. Not necessarily too far, but we want them to be their own self-sufficient, self-sustaining people. But yet, when it comes to your relationship with Christ, self-sufficiency and autonomy is not a virtue. It is the enemy. The more self-sufficient you think you are, the worse off 
you are. We must celebrate the fact that we are dependent. Now, the reason I bring this up is what we have going on in this passage is the disciples have failed. And their failure represents their own problem, but it has affected their witness. And they failed precisely because they thought that because they had been commissioned by Christ and empowered by Christ back in chapter 6, verse 35, that that meant that they could therefore do the Christian life, do their ministry in their own strength, by their own power, autonomously. We are not meant to be autonomous beings. And this passage right here really drives home that the key expressions of our self-conscious dependency is increased faith and increased prayerfulness. Both of these are essential indicators of a life of vital union with Christ. Now let me be clear. I want to be very, very clear. And it's going to shock some of our Calvinistic sensibilities. Your success in the Christian life, your successful fulfillment of the call that Christ has placed upon your life is directly connected to you drawing on Christ's strength and you persevering after the kingdom. Some think that because we're Calvinists, that absolves us of responsibility. I get to just rest in his sovereignty. No. God's sovereignty, instead of putting a blanket over our efforts, it fuels them, it motivates them, because we know that we serve a sovereign God who will not let his word return void. He will accomplish the good purposes he has for us, and so we can run with vigor knowing that we will reach the goal. But Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5, many of you know this one too, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the branches, you, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada, zilch, zip, nothing. And this point is driven home profoundly by our passage today. We must walk in vital union with Christ, celebrating our dependency upon him, or else we too will meet with failure, as did the disciples. So what happened? All right, if you look at this passage, you see that the disciples' failure here precipitates a growing moment, a learning opportunity. We don't always grow and learn when we fail, but in every failure there is the opportunity for growth. This strikes to the need for good, sound mentoring. Jesus comes along, I'm going to wager, not by happen chance, just at the point where, they need, where he needed to be so that he could teach them something. They failed. He needed to reorient their perspective so they could grow from it. He's developing leaders, which is why he instructs them in private, 
so he doesn't expose them to shame. Okay, there are some in our midst who are veritable masters at some particular thing. Do you engage in the process of identifying and training the next generation? You won't be here forever. Or maybe you'll still be here, but you'll be sick or on vacation. Have you identified and are you in the process of training the next generation to carry on the work? Jesus was engaged in the multiplying effect of teaching subordinate leaders. He wasn't going to be there forever, but now he's equipped 12, 11 other people to carry on the mission in his name. Exponential increase. That is certainly a paradigm for us, which is why we are called to train up future leaders. Part of our faithfulness is bound up in training future leaders. So I encourage you, do that. And when your protege or, dare I say, disciple fails, use their failure as an opportunity to teach them rather than beat them down. All right, so they failed. And Jesus comes down and there's a fight going on. There's, they're arguing. What's going on? What's happening? What are you arguing about? Now, in the midst of this fight, they've probably forgotten what they were fighting about. That's the way fights work. But there's one in that crowd who hasn't forgotten why he's there, and that's the father of the boy. And so in verses 17 and 18, he says what happened. I, my son has this demonic spirit, and I brought my son to you. You weren't here, so I had your disciples try to cast it out, and I asked them to do it, and they, and they couldn't. They were not able that's what causes the fight. Now, I'm not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet, but I suggest that the fight went something like this. They couldn't cast out the spirit. The scribes who are their enemies thought that was great. They probably laughed at him, probably heckled him, maybe even cast scorn and derision upon Jesus whom they serve. And the disciples were defensive and humiliated and angry, and so they responded, shut up. And it just snowballed from there. See what being a parent does for you? You just sort of learn how fights work like that. <laughs> All right. But the father speaks up. My son has had this demon, and it causes him to to fall on the ground, and, and he goes mute and deaf, and he's foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth. His symptoms sound an awful lot like epilepsy. In fact, so much so that this is one of these examples where, where moderns like to cast scorn on the ancient world, and they say, they see these, these, these simple-minded people, they thought that every sickness was a demon. And to that I say three things. No, they didn't. They very clearly understood the difference between demons and sicknesses. You see it all the time in the Gospels. Jesus heals sick people, casts out demons. There's a distinction that's drawn. Even David, when he pretends to be insane and he's slobbering all over himself and he goes before the Philistine king, he was understood to be crazy, not possessed. Okay, they understood the difference. They weren't idiots. They didn't build aqueducts and roads that have lasted to this day by being morons. Okay? 
So don't let people bully you into thinking that they were simpletons back then. So Jesus says, okay, bring the boy to me. In verse 20, the boy comes, and as soon as the demon sees him, it causes the boy to go into one of these fits. You get the impression that the demon is just tormenting the boy. It's, he, he's not like Legion in that man permanently. It's like the demon has targeted his victim, and he enters him and, and, and just pokes him and prods him and just torn, to make his life miserable until finally he can kill him. And he seizes him as soon as the demon, through the eyes of the boy, sees Jesus. And he falls down. And Jesus invites the man into dialogue by saying, how long has the boy been this way? And he says, since his childhood. Now the man is there. He's looking at his helpless son on the ground writhing under the effect of this demon. Just writhing in agony. And his hope and confidence have been diminished. Think about it. In verse 17, he confidently brought his son to the disciples and asked them to cast it out. I've heard all about this Jesus. He casts out, that's what he does. But their failure, coupled with him seeing his son in this agony, now he's not so sure. And so he says, if you're able, show some compassion on me and help me. And of course, Jesus catches that. If... If, if, if you can. This man had fallen into the error committed by so many who mistakenly attribute the failure of God's people to be a weakness on the part of God himself. Oh, how many hundreds of people I have talked to who have left the church saying, oh, Christians are bad, Christians are mean, they're hypocrites. That's the favorite one. And they, and they don't just reject the church and, and still try to pretend they're walking with God, they'll reject God too. It's in part because we bear the name of God, right? And so we cast dispersion upon God and what He looks like to them. But it's a mistake. God's people fail. That's our fault. It's not God's. If God's people treat you poorly, it's not God treating you poorly. It's that person. But he lost sight of that for a moment. All he knew was that now he wasn't so sure that Jesus had the power. Did Jesus have the power? And so Jesus responds, If you believe, all things are possible to the one who believes. Now, this verse has been plucked from its context, and it's been plastered to imply that Jesus is saying that he's just affirming the power of positive thinking. If you believe, whatever you want can happen. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is not saying that if you believe hard enough, you can leap a tall building. I'm not telling you, I'm telling you that Jesus is not saying that if you stand on the edge of, of, uh, of the Grand Canyon and say, I believe, and you try to walk across, you're going to die. Okay? Jesus is not saying that you will become impenetrable to bullets. 
Jesus is not saying that you're going to sprout wings and fly around. All things are possible, Ben. That's not what he means. Think about the preceding sentence. The man has says, if you are able, please show some compassion and help us. It's in direct reference to the request that he is making of God. And Jesus reorients him. Wait a minute. If, if I'm able, all things are, able, are possible for the one who believes. It's not a statement about your innate awesome power or the power of positive thinking to affect change in the world. What he's saying is that if you will take off your limits that you have placed on God, you will see God do great and amazing things. So often, we are the ones who expect virtually nothing of God. We approach God with these weak, tepid, half-hearted, half-skeptical prayers. Oh, I, you know, I, I have to say that God can, but, but I'm not really, you know, huh. and we're not really sure. We doubt that he is able. If you expect little, you'll get little. But Jesus wants you to understand, if you believe, ask God and expect great things because God is able to affect any situation regardless of how hopeless or helpless it seems. He's not promising to wipe away and rectify every single problem you face. It's not saying that if you have a difficulty in your life, then it's because you didn't believe hard enough. Remember, the Apostle Paul himself had a thorn in his side that he appealed to God multiple times for it to be removed. And what was he told? My grace is sufficient for you. This is not a statement of your ability to just be awesome in every situation. It's a statement of the power of God to meet and exceed every expectation we could possibly have if we would simply remove the blinders from our eyes and believe. Believe. This whole episode centers on faith. It's all about faith. He laments and expresses exasperation in verse 19 at their lack of faith. And the scholars are agreed that the disciples are included in this. How long will it take them to learn that they must walk by faith and not in self-sufficient power? Too many people think that faith is a one-time thing. That it's like getting a polio vaccine. Oh, I had faith. Boom, I'm cured. I'm immune. Faith is vital. It's living. And so I want to go ahead right now and do a little illustration for you. Faith has three components. Many of you have seen this illustration, and it's fine because it's a good one. And it's fairly accurate. Faith is composed of three things. Knowledge. You have to know something about what it is you're hoping to put faith in. Okay? So there's knowledge. And then there's assent. Not only do you have to have possession of certain knowledge, you have to agree with the veracity or truthfulness of those facts that you know. But then once you have obtained the knowledge, 
given mental assertion to, yeah, I believe it, there's the element of volitional trust. Faith always involves the will. It's you in action. So, statement of fact, this is a chair. Legs are made of sturdy metal. The chair cushion seems to be thick and comfortable. Now, I'm not an expert, but I know something about the strength of metal, and I know something about the powers of weight proportional displacement. So, based on those facts, I affirm, I believe this chair could support my weight. This is not biblical faith. Faith involves the will. It's when I say, okay, based upon what I know about this chair, based upon what I affirm to be true about my knowledge of what I know, yeah, this chair supports me. Faith is taking the step of trust. And just as I sat in that chair, Puritan William Ames says that faith is the resting of the heart in God. Because your heart is restless and wandering. But faith is when it finds its rest in God. That's what William Ames says. And so faith is not just a one-time, once-for-all thing. It's a vital, relational thing. And we are called to grow in it. Now we learn in Ephesians 2.8 that faith itself is a gift of God. It is. You can't conjure it up. But once God gives you faith, it is your duty. You are called to exercise it, to grow in it, to remove impediments to it, to make good use of the means that God has given so that we can grow. And our strength, our faith waxes and wanes. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the late 1800s, spoke of three kinds of faith. You know, there's struggling faith. That's like a person who's just treading water in the middle of a lake trying to keep their head above water. There's clinging faith where the person has got his arm over the side of the boat or he's, or he's holding on for dear life to something. And then there's resting faith where you're safely in the boat. And we sometimes wax and things happen that shake us. That happens. We're not always strong and mighty. Sometimes we're weak and frail. But do we flex our faith muscles and work out and attempt to grow? God can work in spite of your weak and tepid faith. He proves as much when he, when he heals this man's son after the man humbly and honestly and beautifully confesses that I believe, but I have doubts too. God can work. God is not hamstrung by your lack of faith, but it's also true. Too many Reformed preachers stop there. God is not hamstrung by your lack of faith. But it's also true that in the history of the church, God is pleased to use the works and actions of people who have caught a glimpse of his glory and majesty and their hearts burn with a flame and they desire to see his name spread throughout the kingdom. And so they do ordinary things, like start a prayer meeting in New York City that grows and grows and becomes a revival God wants us, in the words of William Carey, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. 
What would it look like if we, as a church, as a covenant body, remembered that God is sovereign, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and that he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? What would it look like for us to be animated by that? To have more faith, to grow in our faith. Well, I suggest we would take more risks. We would put ourselves out there to insult, to having our egos bruised when we go and apologize or ask forgiveness. I suggest that we would serve more. Instead of busily, greedily trying to pursue our own good, we would think, how can I serve the king? There's no glory in being a servant. And we won't do it unless we look from a heavenly perspective. And I suggest we would pray more. Because nothing says dependent upon God like praying. Which leads us to the last part. In verse 28, Jesus takes the disciples into a house and they say, why could we not do it? The Greek implies they're asking a question of technique and procedure. What did we do wrong? They want to know, what do I need to do next time? Did I move my hands the wrong way? Did I, say th- did I not use the right emphasis on the right syllable? What did we do wrong? And Jesus says, this kind can only be driven out by prayer, period. Now the crazy thing is that if you look back to verse 25, Jesus doesn't pray. In fact, it's very anticlimactic. This demon, which had proved so insurmountable for the disciples, Jesus just, there's a crowd coming. Oh, man, I don't want to have another crowd. So he just quickly casts it out and sends it away. It's it's anticlimactic. But Jesus doesn't pray. But yet he tells the disciples, this kind only comes out by prayer. So I asked my son last night, why do you think Jesus didn't pray? Even though he said, this kind only comes out by prayer. And his response to me was, because he's Jesus. That's half right. You, got, you always got to give half credit for the right Sunday school answer. But I believe that Jesus is trying to correct and reorient what we think it means to be a person of prayer. You see, all too often we have relatively prayerless lives. All too often we go throughout our life in our own strength and the wisdom of our own counsel... And we only pray when we have an acute need or at those perfunctory times where we know that we as good Christians need to utter up a little prayer to the Lord Almighty. We'll ask God to be with a particular endeavor. We'll, boom. But you know what the problem with that is? All too easily. If we only pray, if we only approach God in those moments and in those ways, what can happen is our prayer is just a Christianized version of the incantation of a heathen priest. You see, when Jesus calls us to pray, he wants us to get out of the notion that we are in control of our lives in the main and that we can therefore just approach God on our own terms, in our own way. He's instead wanting us to realize that like him, his life was characterized by prayer. The Gospels routinely and regularly show him going off by himself, doing his 
own private devotion time. He was a man of prayer. And so in the acute moment, he didn't have to pretend to be pious because his action in the moment was the overflow of a life of constant communion with God. That's what he's calling us to. There are forces in this world where Satan has entrenched himself. He's not saying that this demon was a super demon, but it had been afflicting this boy for years. It was firmly entrenched in his life. There are forces of the devil that are entrenched, and you can only overcome them if you have a daily communion with God. And so Jesus wants us to model his kind of prayerfulness which is a life where my whole life is spent before the face of God. Don't be one of these heathens that thinks you can live on your own and then just call upon the name of the Lord in a moment just just to accomplish whatever purpose you have. That's manipulative of God. Which is why Jesus doesn't pray because he doesn't want his disciples to be confused. But yet he commands prayer Because if we do not have a steady, consistent prayer life, we will be devoid of that communion. We are contingent beings. We have been called, we have been commissioned, just as they were. But if we don't abide in Christ, we will accomplish nothing. So my question for you is, will you pursue Pursue the work of God in your life by growing in your faith, taking off your self-imposed blinders that limit what God can do in our situation. Will you seek communion with him so you are well-armed for the battles with the evil one that you will face? Or will you just be content to go about life in your own strength, dropping a little ditty to the Lord when you have an acute crisis, and wondering why your life is beset with failure? That's the question. Let's pray. 